We're glad that you are with us. And hey, we want to invite you, if you have a Bible, turn uh, with me to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. That's where we're going to be for the morning. Again, Philippians chapter 2, you already heard a little bit of it read aloud. Um, With the the candle lighting and uh, the reading, you saw and heard that we are now in this season known as Advent. It is a time on the church calendar every year where we slow down and reflect on the coming of Christ, the first uh, coming, and then we look forward with anticipation, of course, to his return. Uh, But so for a few weeks, we'll have a focused sermon series, taking a break from Acts to have this Advent series that we've titled God Made Low. And that uh, line comes from a recent worship song of that Uh, name called God Made Low. Those are three words that really tell the story of Christmas, that we have eternal God, almighty God, taking on our humanity and being born as a human being, Uh, not just any human being, but a lowly baby in a manger. Uh, They say that often good preaching happens when you can tell that the message has gripped the heart of the preacher, and it's not just an academic exercise where I'm just up here blowing smoke talking about things, uh, but it actually means something uh, to me or to whoever it is that is speaking. Uh, And so as I was praying about Advent and considering what to talk about and what our focus should be for these few weeks, um, I was considering what the Lord was doing in my own heart, and this idea of lowliness came to mind. Because for me personally, this has been a stretch in life and ministry where honestly I felt pretty weak and I felt pretty worn down and I've uh, felt discouraged at times and more weak than strong and more discouraged than successful. And so I sense God saying, hey, why don't you talk about that? And I was like, I don't know how fun that sounds to talk about, Lord. But as I pondered it... um, I remembered, again, these surprising truths of Christmas, that God's plan and his power is often displayed in ways that look weak and small and obscure, confusing even. And so at Christmas, we see God made low. And the fact that the gospel of Jesus, again, is for the lowly, not just the lofty. That he sees the lowly. He enters into our world. And I hope that that could be good news for many of you as well as it is for me. So we're going to spend a few weeks just exploring this concept. And really our minds strain to understand and comprehend uh, the doctrine of the incarnation. That we have an almighty God who embraced humanity and lowliness and pain and suffering even. It's such condescension. And one of the lines from this song, God Made Low, goes like this to try and capture it well. It says, as he sleeps upon the hay, he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. It's hard to wrap our minds around those two truths at the same time, isn't it? The theological word for this is, again, the doctrine of the incarnation. Can you say that with me? Incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation. God in the flesh. 
God himself coming to us as the person of Jesus. There's a number of key passages we can look to in the New Testament. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Um, for now, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, you already heard it during the reading, but we're going to look at it again together. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, <coughs> Excuse me, even death on a cross. This is the Apostle Paul here writing to the church in Philippi in the first century, and he's calling them to humility, and he's calling them to unity, and he's calling them to mutual Love And essentially, he's doing that by pointing them to Jesus. Right? He says, basically, I want you to be like Jesus and follow the example that he set for us. He has modeled what it looks like to love others well. And then Paul launches into one of the most famous, famous passages truly in the New Testament, this uh, extended poetic description of Jesus and what he's done. What we just read, and we, we see in it some of the highest and loftiest, uh, biggest claims about the deity of Christ. You saw it there in the text. Paul says, this Jesus was in very nature God, verse 6 says. The Greek word's morphe. He was in the morphe of God. He was in the, the form and essence of God. In other words, he looked like God, and he was treated like God, and he displayed the glory of God. He was God. Jesus the Son is equal with God the Father. And this is why we believe, hey, as a church, that Jesus stands alone. There's truly no one like him because he is God in the flesh. He's not just another human teacher or philosopher or rabbi or religious leader to follow. And that might sound narrow to say that Jesus stands alone, but it's what the New Testament claims, and it's what the apostles claimed, and it's what Jesus himself said about himself. And so we want to take Jesus at his word, which will mean we'll have to really, <coughs> again, move away from kind of that modern assumption that Jesus is just one among many. He was just a good human teacher or just a good guy who said some good things about love. Uh, he certainly did that, and he was a, an amazing teacher. But we know from Scripture he's so much more than that. Right? Jesus is Savior. He is our King. He is eternal God come to us, and he's worthy of our worship. This really is one of the key non-negotiable central doctrines of Scripture and Christianity, the deity of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, has eternally existed as God and is one with the Father and the Spirit. He was not created by God, as certain movements will teach. Um, Mormonism will say that, or the Jehovah's Witnesses will say Jesus is really important and maybe became God later, became divine later, but he is a created being, they will say. And yet we see from the scriptures that he was and always has been God, eternal 
in glory, eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit. He did not become divine uh, later. At some point, he always was and is fully God. But I want you to notice the striking uh, truth of Philippians chapter 2, of, of what Jesus did, essentially, as God. Look at it again. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So, Jesus, being in very nature God, stepped in to our world as a human being. Verse 7, he, he didn't stay safe in heaven and comfortable in heaven and far off in heaven. No, he uh, was born as a baby. He was made in human likeness. So Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. John 1.14, the word became flesh and walked among us. It's what Isaiah chapter 9 speaks of at Christmas, right? For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and he will be called, and there's a num number of titles they are hanging out in our lobby, and one of them is Mighty God. Fully God, fully man. So in the weeks ahead, again, we're going to explore the implications of this doctrine, of the incarnation. And there's some specifics that I want to point to this morning, because there are some specific touch points with our culture and world and social setting today, uh, there are some implications of the doctrine of the incarnation for our day. Profound implications for how we view ourselves, it's a, <coughs> excuse me, how we view one another, how we view even how we view our, our physical bodies. Now, stay with me here on an ancient Greek philosophy session for a moment, would you? There's an ancient uh, heresy that was very dominant in the early centuries known as Gnosticism. It's with a G, G-N-O, Gnosticism. Uh, and it was a blend of some kind of Christian teaching, but also uh, Greek philosophy and also kind of paganism and kind of mysticism. And many of the New Testament writings that we see are the apostles and early church leaders uh, writing against Gnosticism. There's, there's Gnostic heresies present in the church that they were speaking against. And a big part of Gnostic thought was this belief in a, a kind of dualism that divided reality into uh, physical and spiritual. And the Gnostics would say, hey, the physical is bad and dirty and kind of contaminated, and the spiritual is pure and good and right. Spirit Good, matter, the created world, physical bodies, inherently bad. And so they, they would say things like, we are spiritual beings trapped in a physical world. And salvation meant that you escape the physical world back to some kind of um, floating on the clouds, disembodied spiritual reality. And there were these Gnostic teachers that would go around with, again, this secret gnosis or knowledge that would say, hey, really, come listen to us. Don't listen to your church leaders. Don't listen to the apostles. Don't listen to the writings of Scripture. Listen to us. We'll show you this true way to connect with God in your heart separate from all of that. There's a scholar, Nancy Piercy, phenomenal author and researcher. She wrote a book called Love Thy Body, and she says this. You've got to hear this about Gnosticism. 
The goal of salvation, again, for ancients or for Gnostics, was to escape from the material world, to leave it behind, and ascend back to the spiritual realm. A popular pun at the time was that the body, Greek word was soma, is a tomb, Greek word sima. What really set Christianity apart in the ancient world, she says, however, was the incarnation. The claim that the most high God had himself entered into the realm of matter, taking on a physical body. In Gnosticism, the highest deity would have nothing to do with the material world. By contrast, the Christian message is that the transcendent God has broken into history as a baby born in Bethlehem. What really set Christianity apart was the incarnation. She's right. In Gnostic thought, again, there were like multiple deities out there. It's it kind of strange. But um, the highest one uh, would never touch the physical world. It was like the lowest deity in their mind, which really was more, um, more demonic, you could say, that kind of like accidentally created the physical world. Uh, so in Gnostic thought, man, the incarnation was a radical, radical message. And here's the deal. The reason I'm talking about this, you're like, what are you doing, Pastor? What? Gnosticism, what's the deal? Um, Gnosticism never really went away. Okay, as most heresies do, it just has gotten repackaged and presented in new ways in our modern day. And if you study Gnosticism at length, you'll see just how pervasive and influential it is in modern philosophical and religious spiritual assumptions that we all kind of tend to carry around with us. And one of them, again, maybe you already recognize this as we were talking, one of them that's stuck around is this dualism that devalues our bodies and the physical world. And we'll say things like, again, spiritual, good, physical, bad, or see salvation as escaping the physical world rather than seeing the hope of the New Testament is resurrection, Right? It's embodied existence forever with God in his good created world. But so stay with me for a second because pastorally, I want to point out a few of the ways that Gnostic thought uh, has, again, affected our world. One example would be how we view, many people today view sexuality and like casual sexuality or hookup culture, you could say. Um, it's basically seen with a lot of younger folks that it's, it's cool it's seen as cool to have a uh, no-big-deal attitude towards sex. Like, the more detached you can be from your sexuality, um, like, hey, it's no big deal, just kind of jump into it, whatever, the cooler you are. And the, the thought uh, at the core of that is that, hey, what you do with your body is somehow cut off from who you truly are as a person. So what you do with your body doesn't really matter because your true self and your heart is kind of the spiritual thing over here separated from your body. And so there's a lot of pressure, again, especially on college campuses, uh, for people, especially young women, to have this kind of cool, no big deal attitude towards sex. And yet it's having catastrophic results. As counselors and, and scholars and authors are noticing, like no matter what... Um, current philosophy tells you you cannot disassociate your emotions and yourself from what you do with your body. Next, we could point to some of the modern confusion around gender specifically and transgenderism, which is an ideology, ideology, think about it, at its core that will say, hey, who you are 
and your authentic self is independent from your physical body. And so who you really are, it's in your mind or your spirit or your feelings, your body, your genetics, your physical body doesn't tell you anything about who you actually are or who you're uh, made to be. So the implication, think about it, is that your body doesn't matter. Your physical body doesn't tell you anything about who you are. Or worse, your physical body is an enemy that you are trapped in. And embracing this, while again, for many today, sounds compassionate, embracing that ideology leads people towards a fragmented and self-alienating view of who they are that actually is making mental health issues worse and not better. Again, it's Gnostic thought. We could point to abortion. Uh, in, in the past, realize this, in the, in the past, the argument for abortion would be that the unborn child isn't yet a life. They're not yet a human being somehow. Life hasn't began yet until some later point. But now, um, again, thanks to science and genetics and DNA, the evidence is overwhelming that life begins at conception. And so virtually all like professional bioethicists agree that life begins at conception. It's a human life. But now, realize in some of these arguments, the conversation has shifted. And they'll say, well, sure, it's a life. It's, it's a human, but it's not yet a protected person. It's called personhood theory. And they'll say they actually have to wait for some later development of personhood before they'll be protected. Some level of cognitive functioning, some kind of consciousness or self-awareness or autonomy, which is all kind of nebulous. And when you look at it in depth, the arguments don't make any sense, really, um, in order to be valued and protected, they would say. And so, again, in that thought, this physical being... A physical existence, physical body, uh, doesn't matter. It can be discarded. That's not enough for personhood or for value or for uh, protection. Again, in, P- in Piercy's book, she walks through a lot, a lot more examples as well. And I remember reading this book, and just in the margins, I just wrote, Gnosticism everywhere. It's true. I mean, that is the, the unifying factor in all these modern ideologies, just devaluing the body, saying your body doesn't matter, the physical world doesn't matter. And yet, to all of that, we have Christmas and the doctrine of the incarnation, where we see that the physical, material world matters. Not only did God create it and declare it as inherently good before the fall, but then he took on flesh himself and came to us, born as a baby in Bethlehem. So realize the implications then, that the physical world matters. Your body matters. What you do with it matters. This is all affirmed as God himself took on flesh and walked among us. This is a little crash course intro on the doctrine of the incarnation here. We're going to, again, explore it for weeks, but I want us to see how really surprising and striking this is uh, because we see words like uh, humility or that Christ made himself nothing. Look again at Philippians 2, verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. When we think about power or greatness or deity, we don't often think about being a servant or making yourself nothing. Or as verse 8 would go on to say, he uh, humbled himself to death on a cross. Like, wait a second, that that's, doesn't make a lot of sense. Or we can look to passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, 
It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Again, poor. Uh, the word poverty for you isn't normally one we associate with deity, with strength, with power, with importance. And yet the text is saying, for your sake, for our sake, Jesus left the riches and comforts of heaven. I mean, he had every right to stay in heaven, right, and remain comfortable there, enjoying his privilege and his power. And yet he, for our sake, became poor. And not only was he born a helpless child, but he wasn't even born into luxury with comforts around him. He ultimately then would go on to submit himself even to death on a cross. I mean, think about it. Eternal God stepping into creation as a man. And not just any man. Not a, an honored or celebrated man. Maybe that would be easier to wrap our heads around. You know, if he showed up like Prince Ali from Aladdin and everyone's cheering and like, woo, he's here. And yet he was rejected and humiliated and and spit on, and ultimately killed. He left the riches of heaven, and for our sake, became poor. So we have humility, we have poverty. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 says that our message is foolishness to the Greeks. And it talks about weakness. And so add to humility and poverty, foolishness and weakness. Because in the ancient world, again, it was all about power and strength and wisdom. And military might, it was about, and glory, it wasn't about weakness or vulnerability. It was about kings and armies, not babies and mangers. And so when you put it all together, I mean, this message of the New Testament at Christmas, humility, poverty, foolishness, weakness, again, those are not uh, the normal vocabulary words we associate with power and greatness and, and divinity. Maybe you've heard the kingdom of God referred to before as an upside-down kingdom, where so many of our modern assumptions about strength and power and importance and where God really is at work are, are flipped on their heads. They're upside-down. The uh, economy of God, the values of God's kingdom are the opposite of what we expect. And so in the weeks ahead, we'll explore uh, things like obscurity, and how God sees the lowly, not just the lofty. We'll explore things like how God is surprisingly relatable. And in Christ, uh, we can relate with him and, and him with us in suffering and in pain and in weakness. We'll talk about how God is surprisingly near and accessible. And then we can actually come to him. He invites us. God is not just far off and unreachable. He drew near to us. And so we can come to him. But before we get to, again, each of those things in the weeks ahead, I want us just to slow down and look at the very heart of God on display in Philippians 2. If we were to say, who is God and what is he like? Again, look at what Philippians 2 tells us in verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So the Lord Jesus did not consider, realize, his status as God, it says, as something to be used to his own advantage. More literally, the Greek reads, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so 
grasping. His status as God was not something he uh, grabbed onto or clung to. He didn't insist on his rights, his right to be worshipped and adored and safe in heaven. He went from very nature God to the very nature of a servant. And rather than looking out for his own interests, he does what? He made himself nothing and emptied himself for our sake. So at the very core of who God is, his very heart is that he is a giving God. He is a God of love who is willing to empty himself and lay himself down for us. And that's really hard for us to grasp, I think, because it's really difficult for us to give up comfort, to lay down uh, power and influence, to, to give up our, our privilege or control, you could say. This is one of the reasons I don't love camping, is because you got to give up a lot of comfort and go places where, you, you know, I don't know if you're supposed to go. I mean, think about it, whether it's... Camping or other things, I don't know many of us that willingly choose the middle seat on an airplane. Say, so you know what, for the good of these people around me, for these next five to ten hours, I'm going to sit here in the middle like a sardine. Maybe some of you. I don't know. Imagine, though, what it would be like to give up this kind of comfort. The Lord Jesus safe in heaven. Imagine what it would be like for you if you woke up Christmas morning and there were no presents for you. And instead, you were shuffled off to an airplane, and you were to spend the rest of your life in the slums of Nairobi or Calcutta, and you leave behind your home and your Starbucks and your Costco and your hot shower, which is probably the closest thing to heaven this side of eternity, hot shower, or clean water. And you were to leave the comforts of your life behind in order to love and serve those elsewhere. Most in our world assume that greatness and power is shown when you get to do what you want. Right? So power and privilege is about making your own life better. It is to be used to your own advantage. Right, Money, power, use it however you want. It's about you. And uh, it's really embodied in the ballad from The Lion King, which The Lion King is one of my favorites. Um, Simba's ballad, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Think about some of the lyrics there. As he's thinking about what it'll be like to be king and to be in charge and to be powerful, I'm going to be the main event, he says, like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down. I'm working on my roar. Again, part of being a king means you're looking down on others. No one will be saying, do this. No one's saying, be there. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, see here. Now, see here. Okay. Um, free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. Say, no, when you have power and privilege, Simba thinks, it means that you're in charge. You can run around all day, do what you want, free to do things your way. Your power and your privilege is to be used for your own advantage. I mean, is that what we're like when we have power? It's an important diagnostic question for each of us. When we have power and influence and privilege, 
do we use it to our own advantage? Or, like Jesus, do we not consider such a thing as something to be used to our own advantage and instead lay it down for the sake of others? Often maybe we're taking our cues from culture rather than Jesus. But when we look to Philippians 2, we see the very heart of God, don't we? That the Lord Jesus gave up his comfort and he made himself nothing in order to come and save us. And so we start our Advent series with this simple posture of of looking to Jesus and marveling at who he is and all that he's done to save us, that our God did not leave us in our sin, but he came to us. He, he, he emptied himself. He took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself to death on a cross. He bore our sins upon his body so that we could be forgiven and redeemed and saved and brought back into right relationship with God. And so know this morning that there is a God in heaven who sees you and who loves you And who made a way for you to be in relationship with him and have all your sins forgiven and experience the very love of God poured out into your heart and given the gift of salvation and eternal life if you would only look to him and and trust in him as Savior. We have a chance to do this together as we take communion. And so we're going to come to the table now uh, in response as a church family. Uh, When we come to the table, uh, we take the elements representing the gospel, Jesus' broken body on the cross for you and for me, and his shed blood on the cross for you and for me. Uh, He tells us to do this in remembrance of him. And so we take these elements as a way of remembering the work of Christ to save us. And we come, as I say this almost every time, we come with open hands because we don't come to the table. We don't come uh, before the Lord with our resume and look at all that I've done, and look at my, uh, again, moral performance and the hoops I've jumped through. We come empty-handed, truly with nothing to bring other than our sinful hearts and what He's a Savior. And we come to receive the finished work of Christ and what He's done for us. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we invite you, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, please come forward and participate with us at one of the stations when you're ready. Uh, We have an open table here, which means you don't have to be a member. Uh, If you're just visiting, that's okay. We invite anyone who's a follower of Jesus to come participate with us. Would you pray with me?